A warning. This episode features discussions of murder, rape, and assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. I think most of us want to believe in something bigger than ourselves. That life isn't just a series of random events strung together, but instead that each step brings us closer to where we're supposed to be. After all, a million and one things had to happen for us to even be listening to this episode. Call it whatever you like. Fate, destiny, divine intervention, God even. It doesn't always come with a happy ending, and it's certainly not something we can control. All we can do is follow the signs and see where they lead us. Today, we're going to learn about a family who did just that. In the summer of 1974, all the stars aligned for the Cowdens to pack up and go on a last-minute vacation. But then, fate, destiny, whatever you decide to name it, brought someone else there too. And because of that, the Cowdens never left. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet the Cowdens, a beautiful family of four from Southwest Oregon who loved the great outdoors. When they didn't return from a camping trip, their disappearance sent an entire town searching for them, but they were looking in all the wrong places and at all the wrong people. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. Plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. It's August 31st, 1974, the Saturday before Labor Day. The southwest part of Oregon looks just like a Bob Ross painting. I'm talking sunny skies, majestic mountains, clear crystal waters, the idyllic great American landscape. It's the perfect weekend to be outdoors with loved ones. 
which is exactly what the Cowden family sets out to do. 27-year-old Richard and his wife, 22-year-old Belinda, are obsessed with being out in the wilderness. They have their favorite campsite about 40 miles southwest of their home in White City, Oregon. It's called Carberry Creek, and it's nestled in the Siskiyou Mountains, near the border of Oregon and California. The grounds are isolated and undeveloped, but still not too far from civilization. But even if they were, Richard and Belinda would be fine. They're seasoned campers, so much so that they're comfortable bringing their five-year-old son, David, and their five-month-old baby, Melissa, along with them. By early afternoon on the 31st, they pack their kids in their 1956 Ford pickup truck, along with their gear, extra clothes, and their trusty basset hound, Droopy. And they set off, driving through the winding roads of the Pacific Northwest. By 3 p.m., they're about a mile away from their destination and make a quick stop in the small town of Copper. They head inside a general store to pick up a few essentials, but they also say hi to Belinda's mom, Ruth Grayson, who happens to work there. Ruth can tell everyone is itching to set up camp and she doesn't want to keep them. So they make plans to meet for dinner the next day after the Cowdens have had their fun. So the next afternoon on Sunday, September 1st, Ruth's cooking up a storm. Certain the family will be sick of baked beans and hot dogs by now. Early afternoon turns to evening and Ruth is getting antsy. The food's getting cold and Belinda's not the type to be late. She's respectful and responsible. When she says she's gonna be somewhere, she's there. Call it mother's intuition, but Ruth senses something's wrong. She leaves her house in Copper and drives the mile over to Carberry Creek. When she gets to the campsite, she sees Richard's pickup truck parked on the main road and the family's fishing poles resting up against the trees. She also clocks a picnic table with a half-empty carton of milk on top. There's food on the table, as if the family hadn't finished their meal. But what Ruth doesn't see is the Cowdens. No Richard, no Belinda, no David or baby Melissa, not even Droopy. Heart racing, Ruth calls out to them, hoping maybe they've just gone on a hike and lost track of time. But all she hears is the gentle rustling of trees and water rippling off the creek. By this point, it's still light out, though dusk is starting to set in. Ruth hopes that maybe the family went out for an evening swim. She heads down towards the creek and on the way, finds Richard's watch and wallet on the forest floor. This has to be worrisome, but with no one else camping in the area, perhaps he just left his belongings there so they don't get wet. When Ruth reaches the edge of the swimming area, she doesn't see anyone in the water. So she heads back to the campsite, heart pounding, and pokes around Richard's truck and the family's tents. On a cot, she finds a stack of folded clothes, but their swimsuits are missing. I can't say for certain if Belinda told her mother they planned to swim that weekend, but to Ruth, there's no doubt in her mind that they'd have brought their suits along. So if none of their bathing suits are there, the Cowdens have to be wearing them, right? At this point, Ruth's mind is racing with the worst case scenarios. Like what if the family drowned or they were attacked by a wild animal? or trapped inside of one of the many abandoned mine shafts in the area. 
See, over a hundred years ago, copper was a gold mining town. But now, in 1974, most of these shafts have been either filled in or blocked off to protect someone from falling in. Yet, it isn't hard to imagine five-year-old David venturing off trail and stumbling down a shaft. His parents would have certainly attempted to go after him. And if that's the case, Ruth knows she won't be able to find her family on her own. So she gets back in her car, drives home, and phones the local sheriff for help. Now, people don't just up and disappear near Copper, especially not entire families. And given that a five-month-old baby is in the mix, both state and local authorities respond quickly to Ruth's call. According to author Ann Rule's coverage of the case, just before sunset, a team of officers pull up to the camp. They wander the ground's woods, shouting Richard and Belinda's names into the darkness. But much like Ruth's attempts, theirs are fruitless. What they do notice, however, is that nothing at the Cowden's campsite seems to be amiss. It doesn't even appear as though a scuffle took place. There's no extra set of footprints, no new tire prints. So authorities speculate, maybe the Cowdens left the area due to some emergency. Perhaps Richard or Belinda got so badly injured that neither could drive and were taken to a hospital by a good Samaritan. But again, it's difficult for authorities to confirm this. Once it's too dark to see anything, the police leave a few officers behind for the night, just in case the Cowdens come back and decide to pick up the search the following day. But around 2.30 a.m. that morning, the general store where Ruth works at gets an unexpected visitor, Droopy. The owner, Guy Watkins, who was asleep in the back, wakes to the Basset Hound pawing at the door. The poor dog is clearly exhausted, hungry, and thirsty. He looks like as if he'd been on an adventure of his own, which isn't a good sign. If the Cowdens did have an emergency, they wouldn't have just left their dog behind. Many see Droopy's arrival as an indicator. Perhaps the Cowdens are still somewhere up in the forest, possibly trapped or injured. Once the sun rises on the 2nd, officers from local, state, and federal agencies rally together, making a massive task force. Crime scene investigators are literally on their hands and knees scouring the campground. The CSIs know that if they can find a pool of blood, a bullet casing, or even a scrap of clothing, they can probably trace it back to some third party who might be involved with the Cowdens, but they find none of those things. Investigators also bring in a pack of bloodhounds. These dogs are expert trackers and can smell a body alive or dead from afar. But when they're given clothes from the Cowden family to sniff and track down, the dogs just go in circles. Some detectives even fly a helicopter above the Siskiyou Mountains to get a bird's eye view. They're armed with an infrared camera and take photographs of the rugged terrain. Any changes to the grounds, like evidence of someone trekking around the campsite, would turn up red in the photos. But even this gets them nowhere. By September 5th, four days after the Cowdens go missing, investigators expand their search to a 25-mile radius of the campsite this takes authorities down off-beaten trails, inside caves, and even those 100-year-old mine shafts. By the 7th, the task force travels up and down the Applegate River, stopping at any creek or inlet that might have collected a drowned body. Once again, there's no trace of Richard, Belinda, David, or Melissa. 
which makes the police wonder, did the Cowdens choose to disappear on their own? What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Cowdens were never supposed to be at Carberry Creek on September 1st, 1974. They were supposed to be at home spending Labor Day weekend redoing their driveway. Richard even made plans to borrow a large truck to haul the gravel. And as far as I can tell, Belinda and the kids were going to hunker down at home with him. But as fate would have it, the truck broke down. There was no way he could check that off his to-do list. So what did the Cowdens do instead? They packed up and went camping at Carberry Creek. Unfortunately, it's difficult for investigators to pin down exactly what the Cowdens did on the first day of their trip. But at some point, they realize they're out of milk. So Richard and David hike a mile into town. At around 9 a.m. on September 1st, they stop into the general store. And that's the last time anybody sees them alive. It's likely that from there, Richard and David head back to the campground. They make it back safely, because that half-drank carton of milk is at the site when Ruth arrives. But after that, the timeline goes dark. There are no clues, no signs of a struggle, nothing to hint at what becomes of the Cowden family. With no other leads to follow, police take a closer look into the Cowdens themselves. On September 5th, they begin searching their home in White City, a beautiful three-bedroom, two-bathroom house about an hour away from the campsite. In the kitchen, they find vegetables ripening by the window, as well as a freezer stocked with perishables, which means the Cowdens probably plan to come back after all. But it's not enough to keep investigators from digging into their personal lives. Next, they look into Richard and Belinda's financial affairs. Maybe the Cowdens are in debt. Maybe they're running from collectors. But it turns out the Cowdens aren't struggling. Not that they're living it up or anything, but they make enough to have two cars and two savings accounts. They're comfortable. So that theory falls flat. But the authorities' wide-net approach to the case leads them to an even more damning hypothesis. Marital problems. They wonder if perhaps Richard or Belinda started an affair that went south, 
and now the entire family is paying for their indiscretion. Except there's nothing to support this hunch. It's clear that authorities are grasping at straws, likely under pressure to close a case. But this kind of speculation is not only problematic, it's dangerous. Time and resources are wasted chasing this false and rather salacious theory, especially since the Cowdens could still be out there alive and needing their help. And sure enough, nothing comes from this line of questioning. According to friends and family, Richard and Belinda are happily married. In fact, the birth of their baby girl brought them even closer together. Eventually, investigators come to terms with the fact that the Cowdens wouldn't just uproot their lives, especially since they're so tethered to their own families who live in the area, which means police might have a bigger problem on their hands. Maybe there's someone out there who wanted to hurt them. At this point, the Cowden's case is handled primarily by the Oregon State Police. Over the next few months, their detectives interview 150 people, questioning anyone who was anywhere close to the area the day of the disappearance. Meanwhile, Richard's family takes matters into their own hands. See, prior to his disappearance, Richard had already lost his oldest brother, and the weekend the family vanished, Richard's older brother was waiting on a possible cancer diagnosis. So the family has experienced more heartbreak than they're willing to bear. And with investigators not making any headway, Richard's father and brother start driving out to the campground to search the forest themselves. But as far as I can tell, they don't come up with anything new. Nobody finds a trace of the Cowdens until the spring of 1975. 24-year-old Marvin Proctor and 25-year-old Roger West are on a mission to strike it rich. But after a failed attempt at gold panning along the Rogue River, they make a pit stop at a grocery store. There, they spark up a conversation with two campers. The campers know a lot about the area. They tell Marvin and Roger their best bet at finding gold is heading south towards Applegate County, where the old mining shafts are. They also learn the area is a few miles north of Carberry Creek, where the Cowden family mysteriously disappeared seven months earlier. So on April 12th, they post up at a nearby campsite, then set off to scour the area for hidden treasure. Around 3 p.m., they trek upwards along a gully. There's quartz all over the area, and both men know that gold nuggets are sometimes found alongside the crystal. So they carefully sift through the rocks but Roger's so focused on finding gold that he doesn't see a log in front of him. He trips and falls. When he regains his footing and looks up, he spots something a lot more shocking than gold. It's a human skull, just inches from his face. Obviously pretty spooked, the two men hightail it back to their car and alert authorities. When officers arrive, they have a sinking feeling that they're staring at the skeletal remains of Richard Cowden. The missing father of two appears to have been tied to a tree, killed, then left to the elements. Dental records later confirm that hunch. But in the meantime, investigators comb the area further, believing the rest of the Cowden family could be nearby. The day after finding Richard, investigators discover a cave about 200 yards away from his remains. It's been sealed up from the outside with a pile of rocks and dirt but officers are able to see inside and discover the remains of Belinda, 
David and baby Melissa. Seven miles. That's how far the Cowdens are discovered from their campsite. But how exactly did they get there? And more importantly, how did they die? It's grim. An autopsy discovers that both Belinda and her five-year-old son were shot, while five-month-old Melissa died of head trauma. Through this autopsy, investigators receive one of their first and only tangible clues. The murder weapon, a 22 caliber gun. Richard's cause of death is harder to identify. Because he was left outside, exposed to harsh weather and wildlife, his remains don't offer a clear picture on what happened. And it's not certain whether he died before or after the rest of his family was murdered. So investigators return to the drawing board, coming up with theories about what may have happened seven months earlier on September 1st, 1974. The first theory is that someone saw Belinda in her bathing suit and couldn't resist visiting the campsite. Perhaps Richard and David were at the general store. Once they returned, the perpetrator got the family into his car then drove them seven miles away to the place where their bodies were found. The police wonder, did he force them into the car at gunpoint or were they transported post-mortem? Either way, the final resting place is telling. It's remote and hidden. It makes the police believe the killer is a local, one that had access to a 22 caliber gun and maybe a history of committing sexual assault. The authorities search their database for locals with priors, violent criminals, sex offenders, as well as anyone with a stint in a psych ward. And they find someone who checks all those boxes. 25-year-old Dwayne Little. He's a convicted murderer and rapist who's been examined by several psychiatrists at the Oregon State Penitentiary. Most telling, he was paroled in May of 1974 and spent that entire summer living with his parents near the town of Copper, which makes Dwayne suspect number one. And at some point in 1975, they go to his house and question him about the Cowdens. Dwayne swears he's innocent, claims he's never met the family before in his life. However, he does admit that he was in the area on that fateful weekend, as were his parents, Bruce and Margaret Little. On the exact day the Cowdens went missing, the Littles went on a family trip of their own. They packed into their pickup truck and drove around Carberry Creek, enjoying some time outdoors. But according to one eyewitness, their trip didn't seem enjoyable. Margaret was in the car, sitting between her husband and son, bawling her eyes out. We don't know what she was upset about, but her son was just released on parole after incarceration for murder and rape. They probably had a lot to discuss as a family. Given the circumstances, investigators search the little family home and have their pickup truck impounded, but they find nothing. Not even the 22 caliber gun that's registered in Margaret's name. Now, I don't like giving air to the backstory of a murderer. Many perpetrators thrive off that type of attention. And personally, I don't like to give them that satisfaction or any form of infamy. But in this instance, I think it's the only way we can understand the leading theory behind this unsolved case. I wanna warn you, it's dark. If discussions of murder, rape, and assault may be triggering for you, I suggest you skip ahead about 30 seconds. 
Dwayne grows up about 140 miles north of Carberry Creek in Lane County, Oregon. As a teen, he crushes on his neighbor, 16-year-old Orla Faye Phipps. She's pretty, intelligent, has the whole world ahead of her. But in November of 1964, she's found dead in a brushy area. She's been beaten, stabbed, and her throat's been slashed with a knife. If that wasn't enough, she's also been raped post-mortem. Blood, fluid, and hair samples taken from the crime scene all match Dwayne's. So, in February 1966, at the age of 17, he's convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life behind bars. But Dwayne thrives inside Oregon State Penitentiary. He takes classes to continue his education, manages to get a work release program, and is speaking up in his group therapy sessions. So much so that after just eight years, he's released on parole, walking out by May of 1974. The 24-year-old moves to Jacksonville, Oregon, a city less than 20 miles away from Applegate River. Whenever he's got a moment to spare, that's where he goes to clear his head. He even gets a girlfriend, a woman we'll call Rosie. Later that summer, they both move into Dwayne's parents' house near Copper, which is right around the time the Cowdens go missing. A month or two later, Dwayne cheats on Rosie. When she finds out, she's beyond livid, and she has the perfect way to exact revenge. She knows Dwayne's in possession of a 22 caliber gun. Whether this is the same weapon that killed the Cowdens is unknown, but it's a clear violation of his parole agreement. So in December 1974, she reaches out to authorities and tells them about the gun. The following month, his parole is suspended, not long after that, Dwayne's on his way back to prison. Knowing all this, the lead detective at the state police department is certain Dwayne's responsible for the Cowden family murders. Unfortunately, there's not much they can do about it. All the evidence is circumstantial at best. There's nothing directly tying him to the Cowden's disappearance or deaths. So Dwayne's never charged for their murders and is paroled for a second time in April, 1977. Just like before, multiple corrections officers believe the 27-year-old is rehabilitated. Clearly, they're wrong, because three years later, Dwayne commits another heinous crime, one that further proves he might be responsible for the Cowden murders. It's June 1980. Nearly six years have come and gone since the Cowden family disappearance, and 31-year-old Dwayne Lee Little now lives in Tigard, over 200 miles north of Carberry Creek. One day, he's driving around town and sees his former coworker, a 23-year-old woman we'll call Molly, stranded on the side of the highway. He pulls over and offers her a ride, only he doesn't take her home. He drives off to a secluded location where he sexually assaults her. Afterwards, he chokes her until she passes out, then stabs her in the neck and slashes the tendons in her right wrist and ankle. Only Molly survives her wounds and she tells authorities exactly who attacked her. That same day, Dwayne is arrested for Molly's attempted murder, rape, and abduction. Four months later, in November 1980, he's found guilty and sentenced to 60 years behind bars. That year, he allegedly admits to a cellmate that he killed the entire Cowden family. But incredibly, he still has the possibility of parole. 
there's been a lot of debate over the effectiveness of parole and rehabilitation programs. In an ideal world, these systems give offenders a second chance at life while also ensuring the safety of others around them. In Dwayne Little's case, that's not what happens. If we're to believe the prevailing theory about the Cowden family murders, the justice system let a convicted murderer walk free long before he should have. And for that, the Cowdens lost their lives. Now, to be clear, I do believe in rehabilitation, especially for nonviolent offenders. However, I think it's critical we put the right systems in place. Right now, release is based largely on good behavior instead of a more objective look at the offender's psychological health. That makes it hard to know for certain that a parolee is rehabilitated, and the decision of who gets released often feels random or against common sense. Dwayne is a perfect example of this. In fact, in the summer of 1981, his victim Molly filed a $1 million lawsuit against the Oregon Parole Board. She claimed that they were negligent in allowing a convicted murderer out on parole, despite knowing he was the main suspect in the Cowden family investigation. Releasing someone prematurely from prison isn't only harmful to the community, it hurts inmates who deserve to be paroled. Because of their records and the stigma of prison, rehabilitated parolees are often met with financial debt, a ruined credit score, and the inability to find work or housing, compromising their ability to reestablish a life on the outside. It's a broken system from the ground up, and it hurts all of us. Which brings me back to the idea of fate. The mystery surrounding the Cowden murders may never be fully solved, but perhaps there's a reason why you're learning about it today. Maybe some higher power willed you to hit play, to listen to this difficult story so that you could be better informed and help fix the broken systems that do a disservice to everyone. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to finish this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Aaron Lan, fact-checking by Kevin Johnson, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.